2: And welcome to episode 337 of the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy in Ann Arbor. And I'm Tom Mile in Dallas. In our last episode, we interviewed Chase Hurdle from Simple Citizen as part of our new Fresh Voices on Legal Tech interview series. In this episode, we're excited to bring you another guest in our Fresh Voices on Legal Tech with, again, another very special guest before Tom and I uh, go back to our regular format for an episode or two to make sure we don't get out of shape. In this series, we want to showcase different and compelling perspectives on legal tech and much more. We have another fabulous guest. Tom, what's all on our agenda for this episode? Well, Dennis, in this edition of the Kennedy
3: Mile Report, we are thrilled to continue our Fresh Voices on Legal Tech interview series with Natalie Ann Knowlton, the founder of and principal consultant at Access to Justice Ventures a 2023 ABA Journal Legal Rebel, and so much more. We want our Fresh Voices series to not only introduce you to terrific leaders in the legal tech space, but also to provide you with their perspective on the things you ought to be paying attention to. And as usual, we're going to finish up with our parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation that you can start to use the second that this podcast is over. But first up, we are so pleased to welcome Natalie Knowlton to our Fresh Voices series. Natalie, welcome to the Kennedy Mall Report.
1: Thank you, thank you so much for having me on.
3: Absolutely, before we get started, can you tell our audience a little bit more about yourself and A2J Ventures?
1: Absolutely. I have been in this field for the better part of two decades now, uh, and, and a really long time with the Institute for the Advancement of the American Legal System, which is a civil justice reform, access to justice reform institute at the University of Denver. And I would say that's where I really became radicalized around the need to change the legal system so that it served more people. Uh, now I'm at Access to Justice Ventures, where we're empowering entrepreneurs who are building scalable justice solutions, and we're particularly focused on areas of the country that that allow for some regulatory flexibility uh, with respect to unauthorized practice of law rules and also some 5.4 co-ownership and fee sharing rule flexibility. So, Natalie,
2: access to justice is really being driven and going to be driven more and more by by technology and that's part of the reason for the series and and why we have you why we invited you on so sometimes i get frustrated with how difficult it still is to explain technology both the old technology and new technologies like ai and its benefits to those in the legal profession I really enjoyed the way you talk about technology when you guest speak to my law school classes. Would you talk about your own approach to communicating with lawyers and others in the legal profession about technology and its benefits?
1: Yeah, and I appreciate the kind words. One thing that I tend to say often, and I suspect I've said this to your class, but when we're talking about technology in the context of legal services delivery, and I when I talk, I'm primarily going to be referring to the people law sector, but uh, we're talking really simple technologies here. This is not predictive analytics. It's things like Gmail uh, and other technologies that allow people to reach consumers in a way that is easier, um, that meets them where they are. And we're also talking really simple design tools. So get on Canva and start revising the way that you send client invoices so that people uh, appreciate what you're adding value to more. So, you know, that's just this kind of small example, but, but be creative and, and we're not talking about crazy, uh, sophisticated, intricate legal technologies here. They're very simple tools that people are already using.
3: I love that because it's not just about go and find a fancy new tool and and use it. It's make make use of what you're already using uh, or make use of some of the simple tools you're using. One of the things I think you are planning to do or already doing with Access to Justice Ventures is offering support to tech startups that are going to benefit consumers of legal services. Based on that... How do you view the current state of justice technology? What do you see are the opportunities out there or maybe some gaps that are out there that need to be filled that maybe some of these tech startups, these entrepreneurs or people who are going to be starting things up might be able to help fill or uh, fill out that whole uh, access to justice technology?
1: So the biggest gap, I'll start with the gap because then I think it highlights the opportunity. For me, the largest gap is in this diagnostic area. So right now you have that firm divide between legal advice and legal information. So you have a lot of technology providers out there that are capitalizing on legal information, trying to package it in a way that gets to consumers. But there's that diagnostic gap between what the information says and then what that individual person needs to do with it. How do you one, you can access the illegal information, but can you deploy it? And that's where legal advice gets uh, into play here. So I think the opportunity, because of that gap in what legal technology companies can offer right now, I think the opportunity is in allowing some very limited legal advice so that consumers can actually have that accessibility and deployability piece in the information that they're consuming. So when I, when I talk about regulatory areas around the country that are working on creating opportunities to fill this vacuum, um, that's really, highlighting that gap that I think is is the primary uh, or a primary um, impediment for legal technology to really start reaching consumers in a way that they need it.
3: Does that mean, I'm going to follow up Dennis real quick, does that mean that, that a tech startup that may not have any legal experience, are they going to have to start hiring lawyers to do that? I mean, what's the best way to, because there might be folks who are great at the technology, less so on the legal advice, how do you see that working out?
1: I see that as a a fantastic example of an opportunity. A technology company is partnering with lawyers. We have these new providers that are popping up around the country who are able to offer very, very limited slivers of legal advice in certain instances. So there are document preparers that technology companies can partner with who are authorized to walk someone through and fill out a form. There are other providers that can, for example, do a non-contested divorce for an individual. So I think there's huge opportunities if the regulations can allow for them to develop and mature for attorneys and legal technology providers to come together to provide a, a better service to consumers.
3: So, good opportunities for the tech company, but also for lawyers who may, may be looking for access to a, an audience that they are a market that they don't currently have access to.
1: I think so. Yeah.
2: So, I sometimes call that opportunity area pre lawyer assistance. Um, So it's like, what, you know that you need help with something and you're not ready yet to go to a lawyer or you can't afford to go to a lawyer. And and I had a number of conversations recently, including with one of my students who, to me, really illustrated that issue um, and what the opportunities uh, potentially are there. So my question comes down to this. So my former CEO at MasterCard, Ajay Banga, always talked about doing well by doing good. And you have talked about the win-win opportunities to improve access to justice while also operating a profitable di- business, serving that very, very large middle band of legal consumers above the legal services qualification line, but not wealthy enough uh, to, to be able to afford the traditional uh, legal services or lawyers. Would you share your perspectives on that? Because I think that could well be a game changer. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Right now, we have, and I'm trying to break this down, and I know many others around the country are as well, we have this artificial dichotomy almost between people who can afford legal services and people who cannot. And in that latter category, people who cannot, we often look at legal services, corporation, the eligibility requirements, income requirements. And at at, at that particular gap, anything under uh, is someone who cannot afford legal services and therefore is entitled to subsidize legal services. But then the, the corollary that people assume is that everyone on the other side of that income level, that criteria can afford legal services. And that's absolutely not right. Someone making $5,000 more um, than someone who's eligible for legal services, that doesn't make them any more likely to be able to afford legal services. But also, and I was talking about this with Sonia and Deborah from courtroom five, not too long ago, and Sonia really highlighted what I talk about. And it's this difference between income and wealth. So we're looking at income levels and income is a really poor indicator of what you can afford. It's really your wealth level. So if you're making a hundred thousand dollars a year and you have two hundred thousand dollars in medical debt and you have three hundred thousand dollars in student loan debt you're required to care for your family member all by yourself you live in a large city and you uh, have to pay for rent and a car you're not going to be in the position of someone who um we traditionally think of as wealthy. So I I really am for breaking down the stereotype that people who fall on one side of an income level can just automatically afford legal services. And if I can just keep harping on this for one more second, I think this also raises the issue of consumer choice. And I think that's really important because right now we're making as an industry, we are making an assumption that people on one income level can um, afford an attorney. And so therefore they must afford an attorney while everyone else on the other side has access to a subsidized attorney. But if someone who is making $100,000 a year who could easily afford an attorney but doesn't want to afford an attorney, it makes me really uncomfortable as an industry for us to say, well, no, 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 no. You have to have an attorney. That's your only option. There's no consumer choice in this calculus.
2: Yeah, I was gonna, as a follow-up, I was gonna say that I think of that as well. If any of us got sued in today's you know litigation environment and the way the court system works, We absolutely can't afford that. Um, I I mean, there's just just no way. So I think there's that piece of it. And then that I think there is this notion, and uh, let me just follow up on this, that sometimes you think that the legal services route is the only way to go and we need to provide traditional legal services for free. But there, I think there is this area you talked around legal advice, quasi advice, different things like that, where you can scale that advice and what you're doing and actually turn it into something that's more profitable than they say, like the standard law practice. So maybe it makes a, if you might comment on, on that approach as well.
1: Yeah, this notion of scalable legal services, uh, as attorneys are trying to figure out how to better meet the needs of consumers, I think offers a lot of opportunity to rethink what the value add is for consumers. So attorneys are obviously focused on legal advice. That's what we're licensed to do. We pay a lot of money to do it. But uh, consumers often need legal information. And there's this entire realm of legal information that comes right up to the line of legal advice that consumers nevertheless are really interested in learning about. So I think there's great opportunities opportunities for attorneys to start capitalizing on that market. And I really like the way I think it was Richard Suskin with his son writing in a book. And they talk about this disintermediation that has happened with the legal profession, particularly with the rise of online information and the democratization of legal information. And so to the extent of which attorneys have been Uh, disintermediated by that. Attorneys now are and have the opportunity to re-intermediate themselves as people are looking online for legal information. They can stumble across an attorney in their area that offers a five-step online video course for how to fill out your divorce forms that really is not offering anything more than legal information, but in a way that's curated so that people can understand it and is staged in a workflow that makes it a lot easier for people to digest than if they were doing so on their own.
3: I actually have a follow-up to the earlier thing you were talking about, about the the notion of wealth versus income. And uh, this is the part of the podcast, uh, which comes every time, where I confess that having not practiced in the law for 15 years, I sometimes lack some of the experience that I need to have. So I want to ask this question, which is when you talk about the person who makes $100,000 who, because they have crushing debt, they're in almost the same position as the person who would be eligible for pro bono services. But I don't feel like that's, I mean, I, I, maybe I'm just preaching to the choir here by saying, I, I don't ever hear about that. Is that something that's being addressed? Is that something that... Access to Justice Ventures is addressing. What's going on right now to try and address that group who is probably just as deserving? There's not gonna be a rule out there that says you must provide pro bono services to these high income but not wealthy people. What's, What's happening these days?
1: So in the regulatory field around the country, that's where a lot of these conversations are happening, focused on market-based solutions. We, um, some of us in the industry, call that the missing middle—this large chunk of people who have uh, affordability issues or otherwise want choices. So these market-based solutions in states that are uh, experimenting with them are looking at, for example, providers that have limited scope, legal advice, authorization that um, do not rise to the level of what an attorney can offer, but the the theme theory is, and in some states they're mandating this to be the case, although you, you'd think the market would would kind of reflect this anyway, but the theory is that they will charge less than an attorney. Um, and so we're seeing that happen, and we're seeing people access them. So if you have an uncontested divorce and you want to go to a limited license legal technician or what they're called in, in your neighboring state or state, you can easily choose to do that at, at a price that's going to be probably half, t- uh, if not more than the cost of an attorney. So those types of market-based solutions, I think, are really designed to get at that missing middle and give them the choice.
3: I'm going to take a hard right and talk about something that is near and dear to our hearts, and that is collaboration. Um, Those who listen to this podcast know that we love to talk about collaboration technology on the podcast, and so much so that we wrote a book on the subject. And we are fascinated, always fascinated, to learn about how others in different parts of the legal market collaborate with others. So uh, can you tell us what are some of your favorite ways to collaborate, whether it's with coworkers or colleagues or other people?
1: It's going to seem tragically simple and boring, um, but my primary tools are email, phone calls and text messages. Uh, at IELTS, I was for many, many years, and probably everyone at IELTS is in this position um, all the time. You are routing one person who's asking about information on something to someone who knows something about that piece um, a project or piece of information and so creating those connections across people who are doing things uh, is extremely important I'm also doing some work right now with the self-represented litigation network and that is a you know eminent network of civil justice leaders around the country and uh, simple things like emails are what keeps that network really going in terms of how can I get help on this who's out there who are my resources uh, and you can kind of create that collaborative learning process so that for me when I when I learn about something or I think someone should know something then I send a text and introduce them them, and then the, the change just gets bigger. And that for me has been the most important way that I work and ensure that people who I'm working with know what's going on and know what I know.
3: Well, and a lot of times it's probably because everybody else is familiar with those tools and are willing to meet you on them rather than introducing them to a, a brand new tool that they may be either not knowledgeable about or less willing to use. So that's that's rule number one of collaboration. All right, we've got a lot more questions for Natalie Knowlton. But before we do that, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors
2: Visit get.docuB.com/contracts to set up a call with a real live person. DocuB will be with you every step of the way.
0: Get Civil, and you get a fast, custom-built website that looks great, brings you clients, and drops them right into your firm's systems. Civil partners perfectly with small firms by building the fastest sites in legal, handling digital marketing, enhancing your leads and providing transparent analytics. They're civil to your other tech, too. Civil websites integrate with all legal case management systems, including Clio, Smokeball, MyCase, and Lawmatics. Get a free site audit with a no-obligation 15-minute demo about what civil can do for your website. Getcivil.com. That's G-E-T-C-I-V-I-L-L-E dot com. All rise with civil.
2: And we are back with Natalie Knowlton of A2J Ventures. Natalie, what is happening these days right now in legal tech that excites you or seems to have the most potential? And how might these technologies or this technology impact legal education as well as law practice? Now, it's okay if your answer is generative AT, but it might not actually be.
1: So I wanted to give a, a different answer because um, obviously generative AI is pretty much anything anyone can think about or talk about. And I can't say I'm not in that realm, but...
3: That's my next question. So I'm glad you're, I'm glad you're doing <laughs> something different because that means I get to ask my next question. So,
1: <laughs> <laughs> Well, for me, I, well, we can take a step back and abstract it a little why generative AI is so exciting for me, not just generative AI itself. And it's because it's, it's really this, it's one of the first in my career in the law, at least. The first instances where we're seeing true disruption in what an attorney does on a day-to-day basis serving consumers. And we there's a lot of technologies that have been put forth and people say, well, it's never going to replace a lawyer. And we're still hearing that it's never going to replace a lawyer. But when we look at the tasks that this is capable of doing today, but then think about five years from now, uh, this is absolutely going to change the way that lawyers operate their business, either because they get on top of it or because they're put out of business by those who... Are leveraging these tools and legal education too. Um, It's it's going to be a mandate for people, for attorneys, to start using these technologies and how they deliver legal services to consumers. And law schools are going to have to reckon with how to teach traditional legal education with how to actually deliver legal services in the modern market.
3: So let's follow that thread a little bit and, and and maybe go into a little bit more specific of a question. We have been seeing crazy levels of hype around things like ChatGPT. And what I'm fascinated about and what Dennis and I had, I would say, probably a 45-minute argument about one night before we recorded our podcast is... What role a tool, a tool like chat GPT or something similar, generative AI, would play in access to justice, particularly for the unrepresented? I think you spoke on a panel recently about that. And so I kind of want to get your thoughts on, you know, the lawyer robot in your ear for, for I think has, is how I've seen it done. Are we getting too far ahead of ourselves? Is that a thing? And then I have a follow up on on unauthorized practice of law.
1: So a couple of thoughts here, the first being this issue of how attorneys can use these tools to serve consumers and expedite the process uh, for delivering legal services. I think there are huge implications on access to justice. So if an attorney is able to cut his or her time in which they're, they're offering a service to a consumer in half by using these tools, then theoretically, we'd hope that passed to the consumer in terms of cost savings. Um, but the other way is in those many, many case types around the country in the civil and family justice system that don't have attorneys, and and it's a different question and conversation there. It's not really how can these tools help access to justice. It's um, how will people be using these tools? Because we can sit and wax poetics all we want about how attorneys should be accessing and whether consumers should use these tools, but they are using these tools just like they're using the internet. So I think where access to justice really needs to start having that conversation across community members is, Assuming people are using these tools, which they are, how can we develop better tools based on these large language models, trusted data sets, that are actually going to allow people to get answers to questions that give them some semblance of a next step and actual help? Um, and I have to just put in a plug here because you hear a lot of attorneys saying, well, it lies and it's inaccurate. But this, this, so does the internet. The internet is full of terrible information and people are accessing it all the time. What I think. Um,
2: and attorneys, too, <laughs> are, are not. Not known for a hundred percent telling the truth, as and, and uh, you know, and I think we downplay that uh, a lot as lawyers. I will
3: only say, and this is the source of our argument here. I will only say that you can sue a lawyer for malpractice, and it has not been proven that you can sue an AI for malpractice. At least, not at this day and time, anyway. That's my only difference there. <laughs> so let me follow that out and say that my follow-up question is. Assuming that this is coming, that assuming that consumers are going to start using tools, whether it's something that a, a product that somebody gives or something they, they choose to do on their own, is it inevitable that the regulators are going to come in with an unauthorized practice of law claim somewhere down the road? And, and, and if so, what are your thoughts about how that plays out?
1: Well, knowing legal regulators, I'm sure it's inevitable that they're going to come I, in with a That's kind of a claim.
3: softball question. I understand. <laughs>
1: um, But how I think that's going to play out is going to be really interesting. On, on one hand, uh, there is the risk of harm. I'll acknowledge uh, that people can get bad legal advice online and follow it through and be harmed in some way. And of course, they can get bad legal advice from attorneys and follow it and be harmed in some way. But when you look at it, what the the technology is actually doing is leveraging the legal information that's available online. And so it makes me really nervous to start thinking about allowing legal regulators to come in and start regulating the output of these questions that's leveraging uh, publicly available information. So that really makes me nervous. Now, I think there's a bigger question brewing, and the FTC is like jumping out of their pants on this one, is how are we going to regulate this technology period. And I, I think there's a lot of room for conversation about how that will impact legal consumers. Um, but I, I am pretty, pretty firm on not wanting legal regulators to start wading into this space.
2: I think, I mean, it's interesting because uh, in my AI and law class, we spent a lot of time talking about this idea to say, like, we know that in, there are some areas with technology that we've, as a society, made decisions of, about, whether we want to regulate them Uh, whether we want to clamp down or we want to be expansive. So with the internet, I think we consciously made this decision uh, that it was going to be a place for innovation, and we weren't going to regulate heavily at the beginning. With uh, human cloning, genetics, those sorts of things, we went absolutely the other way. And so the question with, I think, new technologies like AI are on that spectrum, are we closer to the internet or are we closer to, to the biologics, I'll call it? Uh, which I think, uh, and that's going to be difficult, but the fact is that it's changing every single day. Like I've given up doing reading assignments in my class. We just do AI in the news because there's always something to talk about. So it is kind of interesting, you know, what what you were saying. And I I think we're, it's also forcing us a little bit toward this, really focusing on this two parts of law. And this is, I think, where Tom and I sometimes differ, is that there is one type of lawyering that you need when you're in the court system, and there's another type of lawyering when you're, you're sort of out in the world, uh, doing business and other things like that. And if you're self-represented. Uh, you need different types of things, and I guarantee right now there are lots of people self-represented re- doing business uh, business legal deals uh, using ChatGPT. I just saw Dan Lina on a, a seminar or in a webinar, uh, basically draft a demand letter to get a security po- deposit back and uh, to and to file the loss the pleading for the lawsuit for for that using ChatGPT. So that's out there and. Then and we also have, and then also feel like ChatGPT feels like in the world of the MBAs, when spreadsheets first came along, they didn't say like, oh my God, people have to go back and to do things by pencil and paper. They, they accepted the tool and they really drove it uh, for, for what, what they could do. Uh, so that makes me optimistic about where some of the AI stuff is going. But uh, as you look to the future, what gives you Optimism about the use of technology in the legal profession and the legal system?
1: Well, I'm optimistic in general in this area, which is rare because I'm probably not billed as an optimistic person. I just think there are so many opportunities that are available. Um, there There are tons of issues. There are a ton of challenges. I do think, though, the whole world is focused on this right now. A lot of talk about regulation of generative AI. I think we will have solutions, and they might be imperfect, and we might have to scratch them and start anew, but I think we will have solutions that are... Going to address some of the coming challenges. So, I I tend to leave those to others who are far more uh, well positioned to handle those and definitely above my pay grade. Um, And I I just kind of err on the side of focusing on how this can help the industry and how this can help consumers in the industry.
3: So, we talked, you you talked earlier about how getting people to use the simple tools that they have is often more effective than introducing other new tools. What would you say are one or two technologies that you'd recommend that people should be focusing on right now and and learning about right now, and how would you suggest they get started?
1: Well, I'm actually uh, in that boat of looking at a bunch of tools. I don't know if I would necessarily recommend at this point, um, but if I can take a step back and answer that question by the by the journey that I'm going through and trying to figure out how to automate processes and workflows. It can seem overwhelming when you start diving into everything, but I think if you, uh, two things, one, open your mind and be curious when you're looking at these, do demos, look at this as an opportunity to explore and learn about new ways that you can make your own processes is efficient. I think that's um, probably the best mindset to have coming into these conversations. And then, number two is ask your friends, ask your colleagues, ask people uh, outside of the legal industry what they're using. I think uh, legal tech is a very tight knit community. And so we tend to really talk up, and, and as we should, talk up the tools that come out of our little legal tech niche. But there are tons of other tools out there used by industries that you might not think to look at. Uh, advertising has been a big one for me in terms of some of the content generation uh, tools that I've been using and some Gen AI tools in, in there as well but don't make everything up. Ask people, figure out what they're using and replicate what you can, copy it, but also explore.
3: So I will just note for the record that even though I don't think she expressly recommended it, she is now the third guest in a row that we've had people who has talked about automation and looking at automation tools. And so, folks, if you're out there listening, this is not just a theme. It's not just a coincidence. You need to be paying attention to this. So we've got a couple more questions. But before we get back with Natalie Knowlton of Access to Justice Ventures, let's take a quick break for a message from our sponsors. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I.cc and get $500 off with code HAPPY24.
0: If you're like me, you're probably a bit frustrated with the state of our political system today. Democracy Decoded, a podcast by Campaign Legal Center, examines our government and discusses innovative ideas that could lead to a stronger, more transparent, accountable, and inclusive democracy. Listen at democracydecoded.org to their new season, which takes a deep dive into democracy at the state and local level by highlighting different ways to ensure that every voter's voice is heard.
2: And now let's get back to the Kennedy-Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy. And I'm Tom
3: Mile. We are joined by our special guest, Natalie Knowlton of A2J Ventures. We do have time for just a few more questions, and I would like to start with sort of a, what we're calling our best advice question. And I'll give you the option. What's the best advice you've been given from someone that you trust, somebody mentor or other, other somebody that you appreciate? Or what's the best advice you could give to our audience and leave our listeners with, or, or both if you got two good nuggets?
1: They actually might be one in the same. This is a lesson that I learned um, when I had a separate life working with some people in the innovation space outside of the law. And uh, I would say I would pass this advice along as well. And I was thinking beforehand how to phrase this. Normally, I uh, what I was told and what I now embody is assume that disruption is coming and that you will be disrupted. But that sounds really negative And people kind of take a step back when you say that to them. So let me try to reframe it. And, and going forward, maybe, I'll use this messaging if it resonates, plan to be the disruptor assume that you can be part of the disruption, that just because an industry is being disrupted, and I think on all counts, we understand law is being disrupted. Even if you're in it, you can see uh, the tides are changing. But just because you're in it doesn't mean you can't be part of the disrupting wave. And so have that mindset and everything that you're doing going forward. And I think at the very least, if the disruption never comes, great. I mean, that's probably not going to happen. But if it does come, then you're prepared and, and you're on the first wave. And I think that's where most people should try to be if, if they want to stay in the game.
0: Yeah,
2: there's this sort of great quote that I won't get quite right. And I've forgotten who actually gets the attribution on this one. But the best way to predict the future is to create it yourself. So last question, who are your fresh voices in legal tech, the people you like to uh, listen to, that you would want to single out and, and maybe see as part of our Fresh Voices series?
1: So before coming today, I listen, of course, to Kristen, um, and she and the rest of uh, everyone associated with the Justice Technology Association, those are some of my heroes, and I um, applaud the work that they're doing, and I listen to almost everything that all of them say. Uh, One of the things that I've started doing lately and really trying to double down on is looking at from the legal technology space, how can I listen to voices in industries that have nothing to do with legal technology, but nevertheless, I can apply those learnings to it. So I love the work coming out of MIT on generative AI right now. I love looking at other industries in terms of what the advances in technology are looking like there and also what some of the implications are. So the medical field, I think struggles or has struggled and will continue to struggle with many of the same things that the legal profession does in terms of service delivery challenges and demand. And other industries uh, are are similar to that. So I'm looking for fresh voices that have nothing to do with the law, because I think they have a lot to say about how we can improve the law.
3: Well, I think it's been this has been a great conversation. And we want to thank Natalie Knowlton for being a guest on the podcast. Natalie, can you tell the people where they can learn more about you about more about access to Justice Ventures and uh, what you're doing?
1: Yes. uh, And I am honored to be asked to be here. I really appreciate it. Thank you both. You can find me uh, almost always on Twitter. It's at Cat N-A-T-A-L-A-L-L-E-Y-C-A-T. Uh, you can also go to Ventures.com and uh, sign up for information about what we're working on there. You'll find some of the latest work that we've been doing um, on sandbox regulation and advocating for that kind of regulatory approach. And also, I'm still working uh, as a regulatory advisor with the Institute for the Advancement of the American Legal System. You can go to iaals.du.edu com to see some of the work that we're doing there and some of the writing that I've been putting out.
2: Yeah, and, and thank you so much, Natalie. You, you're a fantastic guest uh, and with great information, great advice for our listeners. And now it's time for our parting shots, that one-tip website or observation you can use the second this podcast ends. Natalie, take it away.
1: Have a growth mindset.
3: I don't think we've had a parting shot that, that brief and yet so Full of meaning, so (laughs) (laughs) all right. My parting shot is in response or as a is an I guess a next chapter of what we've talked about on the podcast in the past. I know that both Dennis and big fan of the podcast, Debbie Foster, have mentioned Calendly as the tool to schedule meetings. I will admit that my consulting team is in the dark ages when it comes to scheduling meetings with clients, sending uh, Outlook calendars or just even just telling availability. Um, We stink at it. (laughs) But I don't want to purchase Calendly right now. I want a tool that gets it it done uh, and to uh, follow up with what Natalie said. um, If you don't want to purchase a new tool, try and find a tool that you have that works. And those of you who have Microsoft 365 also have access to Microsoft Bookings. Uh, You can set up a bookings page for you or your team where people have 24-7 access to your calendar. It's up to date all the time. You never have to say, oh wait, that calendar has changed. Here's my new availability. People can access it. They can put time on your calendar if you if they want to. They can communicate with you otherwise. Um, It's a great free way, especially if you're a Microsoft 365 user, it's a great free way to get your clients or others to come to you and make your calendar available to them. Dennis?
2: Yeah, you know, it almost feels like the best thing that you can do this year is start using uh, a calendaring tool like Calendly or Microsoft Bookings. You you won't ever want to go back. Uh, so my parting shot is, uh, again, I just want to say, please don't forget about what happened at Michigan State a couple of months ago. We're back in class, kind of chugging our way toward the end of the semester, but it's been difficult and it's been challenging. And I so... My my continuing tip is to remember to connect with people you care about and and your communities. I want to give two quick things. So on generative AI, the the source I'm really starting to like is someone named Ethan Mollick, and you can the best way to get started with him is on Twitter, um, and he's at e mollick e m o l l i c k. He's really doing some cool stuff and practical stuff with generative AI. Um, and then the other thing I want to point people to is there. I was on Stephen Poor's uh, Pioneers and Pathfinder's uh, podcast a while back, and we'll have that. The link in the show notes. Um, it was a longish conversation, as Tom would say, not surprisingly, but we talked a lot of legal tech history and, and we, we had fun. Uh, and so, if you want to have an idea of some of the things I've done and the history of legal tech and what we see going forward, it's a, it's a great podcast to give a listen to.
3: And so, that wraps it up for this edition of the Kennedy Mall Report. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. You can find show notes for this episode on the Legal Talk Network's page for the show. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, on the Legal Taught Network site, or in your favorite podcast app. If you'd like to get in touch with us, remember you can always reach out to us on LinkedIn, sometimes on Twitter, or you can leave us a voicemail. Remember, we like your questions for our B segment. That phone number is 720-441-6820.
2: So until the next podcast, I'm Tom Myle.